Thanks for joining us. I'm Derek McGinty sitting in for Diane Rehm. The death toll in Italy surpasses 260 as rescue efforts now are beginning to turn to recovery following that devastating earthquake there. Turkey has launched a series of attacks against ISIS in Syria. And Colombia signs a peace treaty with the FARC rebels, and that ends a guerrilla war that's gone on for more than 50 years. There are many international stories we hope to get to this hour. Here to talk about them on the Friday News Roundup, Peter Bergen of CNN and New America, Nadia Bilbasi of Al Arabiya, and Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. You can get in on our conversation by calling the phone number 800-433-8850. You can send an email to drshow at wamu.org. And of course, you can join us on Facebook and Twitter. I mentioned a few very dark stories, but let's turn our attention to what's a little bit of breaking news this this morning. And that is a court has ruled in France on the so-called burkini ban. Why is this important, Nadia? Well, it's very important because it has caused an outrage, especially uh, in the social media. France actually one of the first and the only European country to ban the uh, the burqa and the niqab, which is a full coverage of, of, of women's bodies and of their face. And that was considered for security reason. Some people understand that, especially in the rise of ISIS and other militants. But when women has uh, decided to use what they call the, the burkini, which is actually an invention by a Lebanese Australian women, which is a swim bodysuit to allow women of conservative background to enjoy a day on the beach. Uh, what we have seen is uh, of the images that came out was very shocking. We've seen the police in Nice um, uh, asking a woman to basically to take her clothes off in public. Mm. And uh, this is, has caused an incredible outrage, as I said. Uh, and therefore, the uh, many organizations, including human rights organizations, went and they said to the uh, to the court, they took the case to the court and they said this is not acceptable. So this court in this particular town has overruled that and allowed women for the time being to, 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 to use it. But it is a political issue. We have seen that President Sarkozy, or the former president who has an ambition to run again, has been using it. He called it provocative. It also shed, I mean, it's not just a, a security issue or a social issue. It's an issue about assimilation in the a French culture, mm. the role of this Muslim minority. And the French has been always since the colonial years basically saying, if you look like us, and they said that to the former African colonies, we will forget your color. And now they wanted to do the same with the Muslims. So we should note that the court said, and we quote, the ban and seriously and clearly illegally breached fundamental freedoms to come and go, freedom of beliefs and individual freedom. So, uh, Shane Harris, it seems like it was repudiated pretty strongly. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Nadia alluded to the social media outrage, which was which was big when there were these images of this woman being forced to undress on the beach in front of her children. She was humiliated. Her children were crying. Um, and, you know, this really puts a, you know, underscores the extent to which right now you have a country, France, that is very much on edge after a series of very deadly terrorist attacks. But there is this longer history of France sort of trying to separate religion and national identity. And what has happened in that is that <clears throat> faith has been subordinated, uh, whether it's uh, Muslim women not being allowed to wear the veil or children not being able to wear crosses uh, in school. So there has been this sort of, you know, ethos, I guess, in France of uh, making you French first and having a national identity and subordinating the religion. And I think this kind of reached maybe a breaking point with this, where it just seemed absurd that you were not allowing women to wear what basically looks like a wetsuit. I mean, mm -hmm. it is not as if they were parading around in burqas and protesting 
thing. They were just wearing things to cover themselves modestly. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, during the French Revolution, there was a, a, a real desire to repress the Catholic Church, and there was a <clears throat> French concept called laïcité, which essentially is a form of secularism, which is a very strong impetus in French society. And basically, this Burkini debate is embedded in a much larger debate about the proper role of religion in society, which in France, traditionally, they've wanted to really push to the margins. So this is also, as you brought up, though, Shane, and we can all get into this for a minute, has been focused on because of the terror attacks that France has had to endure. And while a lot of people say, oh, that we, we would never have a burkini ban in this country, you wonder if we had endured terror attacks at the level that France has had to deal with, how we would react to it. Maybe it will be a different reaction, but I still believe that France stand out on this and is very different from the United States. I mm. mean, here there is a freedom of religion that's guaranteed and enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, people are allowed, women, Muslim women, Muslim American women are allowed to wear the hijab and to exhibit any symbol of, uh, of religious uh, uh, affiliation, whether they were Muslims or Jews or, or Christians. And as, as Peter said, I think in France in particular, it's just very akin to the situation in Turkey with Atatürk. The, the question of secularism is very, very uh, strong uh, in the French society. And basically, they, they wanted to say, if you want to live here among us, although they have almost like five million immigrants, they're more, most of them from North Africa, you have to act like us. Mm. And what was disturbing that you saw this image um, that Shane was men talked about, basically, that there was French women in their bikini sitting there completely silent. And some of them were actually, uh, according to the social media, were saying to these women, go back home. Home. So this is not a good way to 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 uh, to uh, integrate the minorities. And there is another striking image, and I end with that, which is uh, there is a cartoon of being used by many people on the social media of ISIS uh, and other jihadist group forcing women to dress up with under a gunpoint, and they have a similar picture of the same image of wow. the French police forcing women mm. to undress. So do you have a sense that the, by having a ban like that, it was actually a recruiting tool for ISIS? There's been a lot of criticism on that very point, that saying that there are people who may have been wearing this garment who now that it's become a political issue and a question of sort of, you know, oppressing people's faith, that now maybe people want to start wearing it in defiance, or you're driving people to become less integrated and more angry at the state, that you're creating a bigger problem than the one you were apparently trying to solve. And apparently they were fining women for wearing this, but a lot of women were wearing it over and over and taking the fine over and over. Mm -hmm. and Repeatedly, yeah. Well, it's not just that, but actually the sale of the burkini has went up by 200%, apparently. And it wasn't mm -hmm. just Muslim women who was buying it, but also other uh, religious groups like Hindus and, and others who... Some people use it to protect themselves from the sun as well. Nadia Bilbasi of Al Arabiya, Shane Harris is with The Daily Beast, Peter Bergen is with CNN and New America. We're talking about the top international stories of the week. Our number is 800-433-8850. Let's shift gears back to Italy, where it's been a, a, a devastating earthquake this past week and a very grim situation as the death toll has just climbed and climbed. Yeah, we see a death toll around, I think, 260 was probably the last count. Um, some of these towns, uh, these very old, old, beautiful cities, uh, will be rendered uninhabitable after this earthquake. Uh, and now, as you said earlier, Derek, this is kind of moving into more of a recovery phase than a rescue phase. Um, many people will not be able to go back to their homes. There's really just, there's nothing left. The scenes of devastation have been pretty striking. Now, Italy is not new to earthquakes. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, there's a fault line there. It's been, they've had many earthquakes and they've always rebuilt afterwards. Is there something different this time? 
Well, you are right. They had uh, earthquakes before in uh, 76, I believe, and 1980, and they lost 1,000 or 3,000 people. But it's always about, I mean, some people, <laughs> well, I don't want to be, it sounds really critical of, of Italy, but many people think that it's like almost a third world country in terms of services. The, the worst thing about this earthquake is it cuts off roads. So this, the epicenter, which is, all, I think it was 70 kilometers away from Rome, uh, was in the town called uh, Amatrites, if mm. I pronounce it right. And it's basically was devastated. So trying to get people who are in shelters now, who been, have a, a temporary homes in tents, uh, it's almost impossible because it's mountainous areas, 3,000 feet above sea level, and trying to get the essential supplies of food and medicine to the stranded people, it, it proves to be really, really difficult. Peter Byrne. I think the, the the big story here is seventy percent of buildings in Italy are not uh, are, are not earthquake resistant. Mm-hmm. Even though, as you said, I mean, there's been eight earthquakes in the sort of in the recent past, uh, which gets to something that Nadia sort of gestured at, which is you know essentially the sort of corrupt nature of Italian <laughs> governance. <laughs> and uh, um, so you know, and, and apparently, in a lot of new buildings are not being it's not uh, really are, are are not being built to the correct standards, even though they know that this is a real possibility. That's not uh, good news. That's actually fairly grim. If they're not rebuilding to the correct standards, is that just a matter of resources or just the government is not forcing people to do that? Well, it's probably a bit of both. Mm. I think Peter pointed to the sort of the the classic dysfunction of the Italian government where, I mean, how many governments have there been over the past several years? And, you know, kind of endemic corruption. And then you get into the local and regional aspects of this, I'm sure. Um, You know, and, and, and truly, I mean, some of these places were in very remote areas where it would be very difficult to rebuild anyway. So there's probably a history of understanding you take some risk. But I think there's just there's so little left at this point that it's almost, you know, for a lot of these people, I think they're just going to move on and go somewhere else. You know, one of the uh, thing, interesting things about this, you've seen so much attention paid to this because uh, some people would argue that it's because it's in Europe and not in a developing part of the world. That's a, a good point, actually. I was in Haiti after the earthquake. And first of all, you can understand the, the and you can see the level of devastation once you are there, and especially the aftershocks, which is Italy has suffered, I think, 200 of them. And I was in Haiti uh, in Port-au-Prince just after that. And we, you feel it and you, there's no place really to, to run to. Uh, but also, you're absolutely right. It's just like human tragedy is always uh, magnified or have better attention when it happens in Europe than it happens in a third world country. Uh, maybe they will cover it for the first day, but then they forget about it. And it's not just uh, natural disasters, but civil wars and conflict and famine and all these kind of things, because people in the Western world don't relate to it. It seems like far away. The media, which is I have to admit is also partially guilty of covering uh, conflicts like this or uh, natural disasters. I'm Derek McGinty, and you're listening to The Diana Reem Show. I'm Derek McGinty sitting in for Diane Ream. Welcome back to the broadcast where we've been talking about the international stories, the big international stories of the week, and we're going to move on. But we're getting so much reaction to this burkini story that we're going to have to spend at least a few more minutes talking about it, in part with Shirley, who lives in Washington, D.C. Shirley? 
Yeah, I just got back from six weeks in Europe, three of which was spent in France. I was there with Nice. I was there when Rouen happened. In fact, I was in Normandy. France is a wonderful country. But let me tell you, if you're going to wear a burkini, why are you wearing a burkini? Because of some cultural or some chauvinistic approach to life? You're wearing it because a man is not supposed to gaze on your body. Then stay at home and don't go swimming. I mean, I'm so infuriated by the whole conversation because it doesn't make any sense. Why are you wearing a burkini? Why are you wearing a full face? It doesn't make any sense in a secular society. And a country like France has to protect itself. All right. It Shirley makes an interesting point, although I think it, it goes... It goes more in-depth than that for the women it who is. are making that choice. It's not actually. I mean, I can see the point of the caller, but it's not as black and white. If right. we go back to Turkey, and we're going to talk about it, Turkey in a different uh, situation, but Atatürk came up with the idea that the society has to be extremely secular in a way that he banned women from wearing headscarves, not burkinis at the time, but a headscarf. And that what, what, what this did as an effect or a side effect is prevented women who come from rural area, conservative family backgrounds, from going to universities, uh, from being uh, educated, from uh, going to hospitals, even uh, mi military hospitals, because they're not allowed to wear headscarves. Now, I understand that Europe is Europe, and we understand, especially now, that they have this um, debate about the identity, and I think Shane has alluded to that earlier. But still, um, if you're a conservative woman, and it don't, you don't have to be a Muslim, what about Orthodox Jewish women? What about nuns? What about uh, other minorities, uh, Amishes, or God knows what does that mean that they have to be prevented from enjoying a day on the beach or doing whatever they have to do no the society has to be tolerant of others um, and I think it's okay for the government to use its power to stop people from exhibiting any religious symbols in schools because it's public schools private schools they can do whatever they want as long as their freedom does not infringe on the other on the other people in the society they have the right to do it and we have to accept that you know, I think the, the key point about France, the key statistic, is about 10% of the population are Muslim. Up to 60% of the prison population is Muslim, which wow. is an, an astonishing number. And so that gets to the question of the disenfranchisement, the marginalization, and the alienation of the French Muslim population. And there's a lot of f French Muslims who have reason to be aggrieved. You're two and a half times less likely to be called back to a job interview if, if you have a Muslim-sounding name versus a Christian-sounding name. You're... You know, the unemployment rate in, in the in the banlieue and these sort of essentially projects Suburbs. is, uh, you know, like 50 percent. And France doesn't have – there's no French dream or EU dream. I mean, the American dream has worked pretty well for American Muslims. Uh, so this is a problem. The bikini is a proxy mm. for this larger issue, which is the integration of this population, which is getting bigger. There's you know, massive waves of immigration. We're seeing the rise of these proto-fascist parties all across Europe and in France uh, in reaction. And this is a very toxic mix together. Yeah, uh, just one point, which is uh, interesting, what you mentioned about 10% of the population, 60% of uh, people in jail. And this is very similar to the situation of African-Americans in the United States. Um, and yes, it is. They have been marginalized. And, you it, know, it is very similar with the following uh, difference. The rate of incarceration for French Muslims is much higher than the rate of black. You know, for, I mean, it's in, too in, high in America. In America. It's, yeah. I think, something like 40% and 12% of the population are African-American. So it's bad in this country, it's even worse in France. Yeah, for sure. But it's very similar, yeah, situation in a way. <clears throat> well said. Let, let's talk about Turkey. You brought up Turkey because there are three or four different things going on there right now that we have to get to. First of all, 
they've finally, in the wake of this coup that was defeated, Mm -hmm. now there is an incursion against ISIS in Syria, and there is talk that they really wanted to do this a long time before, but Mm -hmm. the coup plotters were finding ways within the military to keep that from happening. Shane? Well, you you alluded to the fact that maybe they said they've been wanting to do it for a long time. The United States has also been wanting them to do this for a long time. So from our perspective, this was a positive development. Uh, uh, um, uh, President Erdogan is getting backing from quarters to do this that he would not have gotten it from before. And this may have something to do with the military being flushed out of some of these other people. Um, But, yeah, very significant action. Tanks, uh, fighter aircraft, and special operations forces went in. And why this is important is because they've gone in and it allowed the Turks to then insert rebel groups that are mostly Arab and Turkmen to help free up some of this last remaining territory around a town on the border with Turkey that ISIS had been using as a stronghold. And we've been pushing the Turks to do more about securing the border to stop the flow of foreign fighters to go in there and hit ISIS uh, sort of in their neighborhood. And they seem to have been largely compelled to do it, I think, by this wave of just devastating suicide attacks in Turkey. Most recently one at a wedding about a week ago that killed 54 people. Uh, So Turkey is now, at least for now, uh, in the mix. But of course, we can get to this. They have lots of other sort of uh, forces they're fighting and people that they don't want to see get a strong hand uh, in addition to ISIS. So it's not just as complicated, as simple as uh, Turkey going in and hitting ISIS finally. Well, of course, I mean, ISIS has been uh, posing a a threat to Turkey for a while, but I think they can still somehow not handle it, but uh, they are aware of it. And the last three attacks, whether it was on the airport or in the town of Suruj, where it's killed almost 120 people, mainly mainly Kurds, and the last one in Gaziantep that Shane talked about. But I think the bigger picture here is one word, is the Kurds. Mm -hmm. For them is an existential threat. Uh, the last developments that we have seen on the border between Turkey and Syria was basically allowing the Kurdish forces, it's called the YPG, which is uh, akin to the uh, uh, PKK in uh, Iraq, uh, to expand their territory beyond the west of the Euphrates River. So when they managed, when they were so worried that this town will fall into them, a town called uh, Jarablus, it basically will have a, a whole strip of land will connect Kobani, which is a city that was liberated and mainly Kurdish, uh, on the east, to the west of the Euphrates, which is connect two cities. Uh, one is Azaz and the other one is Afrin. Maybe the, uh, the, the uh, viewers won't be interested in the names, but the whole idea is basically for Turkey to have a Kurdish autonomous uh, strip of land on their border is no under their, on the dead bodies, literally. They will take it. And therefore, the move was designed to stop them from uh, going there. And uh, we'll talk about Biden's visit now. Basically, one of the messages that the United States, this administration has decided to give a stern message to the Kurds to say to them, do not cross. Otherwise, you're going to lose our support. And they wanted to appease Turkey on that. They feel as though they need Turkey. The United States feels as though it needs Turkey as a bulwark in that region, right? Well, 100 percent, because... You know, ISIS has a math problem, which is the United States and its allies is killing um, about 2,000 of their fighters every month. Um, And that's been going on for over two years now. So uh, and their force is estimated being 15 to 13,000 at any given time. The only way they've been able to replenish is by foreign fighters. And the foreign fighters have come from all around the Muslim world. And they've come universally through Turkey because of the very long border. Uh, And. The Turks have now, you know, after a lot of pressure from a a variety of countries, have really cut back on the ability of foreign fighters to transit. And the Pentagon said in April that the number of foreign fighters joining ISIS has dropped from 2,000 to 200 a month. So 
the long-term prognosis for ISIS, you know, with now you've got the Turkey actually invading, <laughs> it is not good. I mean, General Petraeus told me in June that he believes Mosul, which is the second largest city in Iraq controlled by ISIS, uh, may fall within the Obama administration's tenure, which wow. is pretty soon. So, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, this is General Petraeus. He's not, you know, he's in the position to make these assessments. Uh, and whether that happens, you know, in that time frame, you know, we, we, we don't know. But the fact is, is ISIS is in deep, deep trouble. Uh, and every, every week brings more bad news. And actually, just one extra point about the foreign fighters, they're resorting now to children. Mm. So the uh, the person, the suicide bomber that did the last attack in Turkey on a, on a wedding party and killed 50 people was a child, and his ages could be 12 or 14-year-old. I think so, a lot of people thought that the, that was a sign of just how desperate. Deep, de- well, how desperate they were or how deeply they'd been able to penetrate that they could get children to do that sort of thing. Well, I mean, it's easy to get a child and uh, to send them some and especially with the foreign fighters. I mean, we have seen uh, grotesque pictures of, of kids as young as seven-year-old executing prisoners. Mm. So, And they are the sons of, of uh, ISIS fighters. Well, you mentioned Joe Biden, the vice president, made a trip to Turkey. It didn't look like he got a warm welcome when he went over there. Did I get that wrong, Shane? No, no, he's just with open arms. It was everyone's having a great time. What are you talking about? What were you looking at? No, but uh, <clears throat> Vice President Biden was there. Uh, in addition to, as Nadia alluded to earlier, making this statement very strongly, by the way, to the uh, the Kurdish rebels that we have been supporting, you have to withdraw back to the east of the Euphrates. So in a way, Turkey is getting something from this intervention, too, let's remember. Um, was there also to deliver emphatically a message that the United States was not in any way at all involved with the coup in your country. But not going to necessarily extradite the the Philadelphia-based, the Pennsylvania-based cleric who took blames for it. Right, exactly. So this is a cleric living in self-exile in in Pennsylvania uh, who Turkey says, this is the guy who fomented the coup. We want him back. You're to extradite him. And there are, you know, you can call them conspiracy theories. We certainly would in the U.S. government uh, going around that the U.S. was behind the coup. It put him up Mm -hmm. to it. So, and Biden went there, and I mean, just really, I mean, at a point where he was almost screaming, he was sort of delivering this so emphatically, like, we didn't have a part in the coup. That coup that we really object to, that we were uh, outraged by. Did I mention we didn't have part in the coup. I mean, it is sort of driving it home. It's important, as, as, as Peter alluded to earlier, this, this we need Turkey so desperately in this as a strategic bulwark against ISIS. And I think Biden needed to go over there and sort of deliver this message. Uh, whether it was warmly received or not, you, know, you can judge by the pictures. And I think, uh, what was the Turkish comment we were talking about I, I think there was, a, I don't want to misquote it, but it was something along the lines of, uh, Biden wasted a trip and we wasted our time. So it's an important relationship that's having some strains right now. Yeah, well, say. it's been having some strains for quite yeah. some time, though, yeah. because of Erd- Erdogan's sense that uh, he's taken more power. Sure. And, and, and he has ignited a lot of concerns that perhaps he's a... He's an authoritarian figure. For sure. But I think the administration is making a calculation now. And uh, one of the things that was missing from Biden's statement was any criticism of the thousands of people that the Erdogan government has arrested, um, whether it's civil servants, teachers, military, anybody that has any remote connection exactly Mm -hmm. with the coup. Uh, So he was completely silent. He was mum on it. And he said that basically what his aides were saying, that he decided to raise this in private. He didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) 
calling it. Because... Is this another one of those sort of really bad choices the United States has to make in foreign policy when you have an ally that you need, but is it has become unsavory in a lot of ways, and you're trying to balance out whether you criticize or abandon when you need this this country to help you? It's just almost. Yeah, I mean, I remember the night of the coup. It took the United States, I thought, quite a long Life. time to say uh, <laughs> we're, we're against this. I mean, you know, you know it, was, it happened at, the, at night, um, but it, I, it seemed to me take at least three hours for the government yeah. to see say, how it plays out first. This is, yeah. yeah, it wasn't really clear where it was going. And of course, of course, the military coupists were our secularists. Um, you know, so we, I mean, more aligned with perhaps American values, uh, in you know, than than, than Erdogan certainly. So, uh, you know, but. You know he's in power. He's going to be in power, you know, for the foreseeable future because he's he's become even more popular than he was before. He's as Nadia said, he's arrested you know tens of thousands of people who pose any f- kind of form of uh, dissent. Um, and you know uh, we're going to be dealing with him for a long time now. Yeah, but it's not just sorry. I was just going to ask. Do you think it's likely that the cleric in Pennsylvania will be extradited? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think, think so. so because actually um, uh, this is what Biden said. Another of his famous quotes. He said, "I wish he doesn't even live in the United States." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and yet, what crime has so, he committed? Right, yeah, right. I mean, basically, I mean, it's there's actually no proof of this. there is yeah. a team of the Justice Department lawyers now. They are in Ankara and they're discussing. Uh, I mean, the Turks saying they. We handed over the evidence, and the U.S. saying basically it's not a political decision. It's not for the president to say he or I'm going to hand him over. There is a process, and if he's guilty, then it is the Justice Department that is going to hand him over. But so far, it doesn't seem like there is an evidence, but who knows? We don't know anything about it. But Turkey is a very important ally, considering Syria and considering this new uh, rapprochement with uh, Russia. Now, Now, the Russians are a good friend of Mr. Erdogan. I'm Derek McGinty, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. We're going through the top international stories of the week this hour. My guests, Peter Bergen, CNN's national security, security analyst, Nadia Bilbezi, she's Washington bureau chief at Al Arabiya, and Shane Harris, the senior correspondent at The Daily Beast and a Future of War fellow at New America. Our phone number is 800-433-8850, 8850 uh, Deanna in Largo, Florida, you're on the air. Hi. I I know this is sort of jumping around, but back to your uh, burqa thing. I'm a Christian, but I am saying if I knew how to wear a scarf the way that they are properly do, I would just in solidarity. I, I, I think women of all everywhere should just start wearing scarves. We're talking about a, a, a minority of a women who have the least um, ability to speak out and be heard, yet all of these countries, all of these situations where they're being persecuted for their religion, which in this country is what we were founded on, I, I just think it's so ludicrous. I mean, pick on they're, they're picking on women who have no say. They have they they have, they they're not allowed to drive a car. They're not allowed to go out without a a, a chaperone. They're, uh, it, it's it's to me it's just ludicrous that they're picking the, on these women. And I would wish just we would have a scarf day that <laughs> every woman every woman in the world would put on a scarf just to show that we are stronger than just these powers that be to pick something so. You know, Deanna, I appreciate what you're saying, but, you know, we have this email on the other side. We just got from someone named Michael who says, are you for integration into society or not? 
On one hand, you advocate remaining separate through dress, and then you say they should integrate. So that seems to me to, to sort of encapsulate the argument, and of course we've gone through it several times today already. Let us continue to have a conversation regarding the situation in uh, Iraq and Turkey. We got this email from another Michael, I'm sure, who says, aren't the Kurds the ones on the grounds fighting ISIS? Seems they are a better bulwark against ISIS than Turkey. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the, the Kurds have been a very effective fighting force on the ground uh, there, and we need them. Uh, and, you know, the United States is this is when Biden goes over and he makes this sort of, you know, a red line argument, if you like, about going back to the east of the Euphrates. We're having to balance this. I mean, these are groups that we've supported, that we want to encourage, but that the Turks see as an existential threat. I mean, this gives you a sense of just how difficult and precarious this whole situation is. I mean, the, the layers of statecraft that are involved here, I mean, they, they're interlocking, they are complicated. The alliances are frequently changing. Uh, uh, this is uh, and this is just the latest iteration of that. But yes, we need the Kurds. I mean, they are very effective uh, fighting force, no doubt about that. And the Americans have been relying on them. But let's just remember something is really significant, which is this town, Jarablus, that was liberated uh, yesterday while Biden and Erdogan were talking. It took them two hours to liberate it. And guess who liberated it from ISIS hands? It wasn't the Kurds. It was the Free Syrian Army. When was the last time we heard about the Free Syrian Army? Why? Because they got the logistics from the Americans and the Kurds. I'm Derek McGinty. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Welcome back to the Diane Ream Show. I'm Derek McGinty sitting in for Diane and joining me here in the studio as we handle the top international stories of the week. Nadia Bilbasi, Washington Bureau Chief at Al Arabiya. Shane Harris, Senior Correspondent at the Daily Beast, author of the book At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. And Peter Bergen, CNN's National Security Analyst and the Director of the International Security Program at New America. His book is called United States of Jihad, The Untold Story of Americans Fighting for Radical Islam. I want to get back to a couple of emails we've gotten here. One is from James, and he asked the question, is it possible that Turkey's making these accusations against us to put us on the defensive so we'll be less likely to protest the curtailment of democracy? Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. We have been, as, as Nadia said earlier, I think uh, Vice President Biden was pretty silent uh, on that issue. Uh, I don't know if it's so much if that's precisely why they're, why they're pressuring it. I mean, the conspiracy theories have sort of abounded uh, in Turkey over this. And I think that there's sort of maybe a broader sense of, you know, U.S. meddling and power and influence in the region that they are pushing back against. But, uh, you know, it's certainly an opportune moment, I would guess, for Erdogan to bring this up and to uh, keep pressing on it which is, I think, why you saw Vice President Biden so strongly insist that it wasn't true. On another political tip here, uh, email comes our way from Ava, who asks, will Obama ever get credit for the inroads against ISIS? Does he deserve credit? And, Peter, you just mentioned that they were in really bad shape. Well, he was the founder of ISIS, so he's, <laughs> you know, he's never going to get credit, right? I mean, uh, no, for, for, for somebody who's supposed to be the co-founder of ISIS with Hillary Clinton, I mean, he is a guy who's killed 45,000 members of ISIS, according to the leader of the uh, anti-ISIS coalition, General uh, Sean McFarland, uh, just about two weeks ago. Uh, ISIS has halved the salaries of its soldiers because we've 
such a, done so much damage to their financing system. The rate of foreign fighters going to join ISIS is slow to a trickle. Uh, they lost 50% of their territory in Iraq and 25% in Syria. I mean, he, he should be getting credit. Sure, uh, absolutely. But um, I will criticize the administration for the lack of action in Syria. I actually, I went to Syria and just in the beginning of the of the uh, events in 2012, and ISIS just starting to set the shop there. And I think because the international community, without the United States, nobody moves, as you know. I mean, the, the leader of, of the world. Um, if there was some kind of action by the United States, by this administration, ISIS won't exist in the first place. Mm. It was easy for them to come to a place in the heart of the Middle East. It's not Tora Bora, it's not Afghanistan. You you can drive through, through Europe. And people saw the atrocities. The, the biggest victim of the Syrian uh, people or the, or the people who suffered most as victims in Syria, by it was by the hand of the regime. It's not just by ISIS. ISIS, because they, you we see them on, on television, they beheading people and the barbaric group that, you know, operate outside of, of everything that we know and we can describe as civilized. But the Syrian regime killed at least 500,000 people. 12 million people have been displaced. Most of them are Sunnis and they will change the map and the dynamic and the ethnicity of the Middle East as we know it in Syria. So they're the guilty partner and think the administration could have done something to uh, in the early in the beginning of the conflict to stop ISIS from coming to Syria. Just a quick point. I think both my colleagues make excellent points. The, the caller asked me, will Obama get credit for it? I think one thing you will not see the administration do is try to take too much credit for it, because precisely, I think, of the reasons that Nadia is pointing to, that if they're seen, seen as saying, well, look, our strategy of, against ISIS worked, the comeback to that will be, well, your strategy to basically not go too far into it, to rely on other people, and oh, by the way, what did you do about Syria? So, I mean, Peter is right that the U.S. policy has led to, you know, a, I think it's fair to say a crippling of ISIS. But I don't think that you're going to see the president taking victory laps on that in the final months of his administration. You know, they say the generals are always fighting the last war. And I wonder if in that same spirit, President Obama was too hesitant to get involved in another foreign adventure after things went so badly yeah. in Iraq and not much better in Afghanistan. Yeah. I think that's right. And, Peter, and you've interviewed President Obama on these very topics. And well, I mean, there's no doubt that he was hesitant. But I think also the American – there was no demand signal from the American public to send in – You know, I mean, Lindsey Graham was the only Republican candidate who, had, who actually came up with a number. He said 25,000 soldiers, and he was out of the race very quickly. And so the United States doesn't want to become embroiled in another big land war. But, you know, I think the, what Nadia was saying is absolutely true. If we had imposed a no-fly zone early on, you know, I mean, Assad enjoys total air superiority. We can impose that no-fly zone overnight, uh, and yet we didn't do it. And especially after the red line comment from the president over the chemical weapons, that if he used chemical weapons, it's a red line, yeah. and then, of course, he yeah, didn't and, do and, and to be honest, it's a misconception to, to believe that the anybody in Syria, whether it's the opposition or regional power or anyone, uh, has asked the United States to send troops. They never asked to, for, for, for a, a sizable number of troops. In the beginning, there is m many other tools that could have been implemented. And to the dismay of, of many senior officials in the administration, including Ambassador Robert Ford, who was an ambassador to Syria, and he disagreed with the administration on what they could have done. I think there was no political will whatsoever to do anything there. And as you said, they learned that they had burned their fingers in Syria, uh, in Iraq, and the president was not willing to do much. He thinks 
And he still said, and I actually interviewed him too, and he said, I asked him, will you assure us that the bloodshed in Syria will end before you leave? And he said, no. And for him, he sees it as a conflict that goes back to thousands of years between Shiites and Sunnis, which is, which is not fair, really. I mean, there is definitely an, an religious element into it, but it's purely political. It's a regime that was dominating political life in Syria for decades, and they were willing to burn the country down for one family to survive, which is the Assad family. Robert in Bulverde, Texas. You're on the air. Go ahead, Robert. Thanks for waiting. Yes, uh, I would say that the United States is more and more being caught in a giant pincer movement from China on the east and Russia on the west. And the Europeans, as far as NATO goes, have not paid their monetary dues, met their manpower commitments, or their material commitments. So we're borrowing money from China to support Europe against Russia, and the Europeans are playing both sides against the middle. And that is a more dangerous situation than the Middle East. To me, the Middle East is a sideshow. Just because of the violence that's going on there, that violence does not represent a threat to the United States of America. Well, I think that's a, that's a point that lots of people would debate, and I think you'll probably see it brought up in the presidential debates because at least one of the nominees, or Donald Trump, has taken a position on many of these issues that are in line with what uh, the caller is expressing. Um, look, there's no doubt it's a complicated world, right. but uh, you know, as we've all been saying, you know, you, we, the United States uh, is is a leader, and many things don't happen in these regions unless we step in. This is not a point at which we can simply withdraw and say, well, it has nothing to do with us. It has a lot to do with us, even if you can't. Tangibly put your finger on it every day and every moment. If there is one point of good news this week we can look at, it is in Colombia where a 52-year-old guerrilla war has apparently come to an end with the signing of a peace deal with the FARC. Yep, and, you know, it's a big deal because, uh, you know, uh, the war has been going on for more than five decades. More than 200,000 people died. Colombia, which I used to visit fairly often in the early uh, 90s, was the most dangerous place in the world. I mean, by almost any metric, Bogota, the capital, was a sort of free fire zone, Medellin, one of the main cities. And, you know, and Colombia's really transformed. The economy's doing well. Uh, FARC, uh, this guerrilla group, is laying down its arms. Uh, they are, in, in some levels, uh, one of the largest cocaine organizations in, in the world. Uh, you know, and it, you know, this still hasn't. There's a referendum that's going to have to happen uh, for the Colombian people to agree to this, and it's controversial because some of the FARC uh, soldiers will get sort of payments when they, when they put down their arms, and you know, there'll be immunity from crimes and these kinds of things. But that always happens in these kinds of agreements. I mean, look at Northern Ireland, where people who are mm-hmm. essentially you know members of the IRA are now in the essentially members of the government. I mean, this is the way peace happens, which is you have to make uncomfortable compromises. Let's, let's, let's talk to Juan in Miami, Florida, about this. Juan, are you still there? Yes, thank you for having my call. I am from Colombia. I've been in this country for over 25 years. I don't believe on the peace talking in Colombia because the guerrilla, they don't have any ideology. The only ideology they had was to control the territory, to grow the the plans to obtain the cocaine to bring to the United States. I don't believe in that at all. I think it's just a cover-up. And also another... Um, well, let us address that very to... quickly. Uh, Juan, go, go ahead, Nadia. Well, you I would say, to say I mean, give peace a chance. Look, most of these rebels, they get tired. Civil wars ends when 
two parties are like unwilling and they don't want to continue fighting anymore. This is the longest war in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And it's a good news. And actually, you have to credit President Santos for that, who is unlikely partner who has used the military to hammer uh, the FARC uh, and he killed many of their leaders. So uh, it is a compromise. I mean, we, of course, we have to be cynical about it, as Peter just said. None of the, these peace the deals, especially when a country, when you have over 50 years of fighting, uh, that will come to the uh, rosy kind of end. <laughs> uh, you know, Jefferson uh, democracies are going to be implemented and everybody's going to live happily ever after. But I think it's a good, uh, it's a good uh, accord. And as I said, the details still uh, need to be sorted out. And it actually reminded me of another uh, situation, although historically in a different context, which is in South Africa. When you have President de Klerk, who came out, was very unlikely person to have a, a peace deal with, with the ANC. And he came and he, what we have now, of course, is that the rest is history. Nelson Mandela being elected as a president. Um, so, I mean, this, this negotiation has been going on for a while, you know, in between the Norwegians and the Cubans and whatever. But you can be cynical. And I think the most relevant question is what will happen with the cocaine trade now? Mm. That these guys who funded themselves to be the longest probably running guerrilla group in uh, Latin America because they, they relied on this money. Uh, and now somebody else is going to fill the vacuum right. and take the it. Cocaine so trade is not going away. No, so criminal it's gangs, <laughs> gonna, it's not going to go away. And users, are, uh, I guess, they still uh, want it. So you have a market there. Let's move on to North Korea, which fired a missile from a submarine this week. You know, we talked about this a few months ago. I had the pleasure of, of, of substituting hosting here, and we had a whole conversation about North Korea and the fact that the country is very dangerous, but the leadership is so odd, so kooky, as it were, that people don't want to take them seriously. Right. Right. Odd and kooky is one way of putting it. And, you know, and also North Korea is for U.S. intelligence is a bit of a black box. We've never really had a completely good idea of what's going on in there at any one moment, and certainly not with this new leader. Um, the, the launch of this uh, ballistic missile from a submarine was greeted by Kim Jong-un as a great victory. Uh, they fired it towards Japan. It was obviously a threatening measure. He came out and declared this, this shows that we we're going to be able to change challenge U.S. hegemony and our missiles can reach uh, the United States and other targets. That's not true, <laughs> because one problem is, is like a missile like this, that's great if you can build it. You also need a submarine that can actually go long distances without having to surface, you know, for air and fuel and deliver it. And they don't have that. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the, what North Korea has done over the past year or two also has been trying to make these very big claims, for instance, that they developed a hydrogen bomb. Uh, experts came out and said, no, you really didn't. It's something less than that. So they're trying to project this idea of strength and technological advancement, when really they don't have all the components to create a viable nuclear program that we would consider truly an existential threat. Now, that said, you don't not take them seriously because of that, because clearly North Korea is investing in this. They've become much more aggressive in their missile testing. They've become much more aggressive in cyber attacks against the United States. So a lot of this, I think, does go back to the question of what is Kim Jong-un's real intention here? Does he really mean to build a credible nuclear arsenal, which I think we're probably not going to let that happen, and he certainly knows the retaliation from the U.S. for using it would be pure devastation of his country, uh, or is he just trying to project? And I just don't think we have a great answer to that right now. This is the Diane Reem show. I want to get to what do you do about him? I mean, sooner or later, um, 
You, you have to do – don't you have to do something? Well, I mean, we've, uh, there's a lot – I guess we, there's, we've done a lot in terms of sanctioning. Uh, but the sanctions don't work against the country that has almost no trade already. Well, that's right. It has no – I mean, <laughs> what more nothing. could you possibly do to them? We've sort of thrown everything at them. I mean, to some extent, I think what we tried to do then is to try to get China to yeah. exert influence uh, over Pyongyang. Um, um, there, but there's no doubt that – I mean, I think we watch this very closely. Uh, we, we – I mean, we, through counterproliferation techniques and all these kinds of things, we're trying to keep the materials away from them to be able to build it. You know, there's also the, the question that gets more complicated is what about uh, advice that we believe they've given to Iran and to other countries uh, on their nuclear uh, weapons programs? So, you know, we try to basically do everything we can to box North Korea in. But to this point, if you are a, a, a kooky dictator and you decide you <laughs> want to do something kooky, uh, there's perhaps very little we can do to stop you. Let's take one or two more phone calls. Uh, ben in Gainesville, Florida, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi there. Um, so I have a friend from um, Turkey, and well, she's a coworker of mine. And we were having lunch the other day, and she was telling me that during the coup, she was te- getting text messages from her friends that were serving in the military on either side of the coup, and they were kind of um, confused about what was going on. They were um, being, they were just following orders, and um, I guess the implication being that um, the, the people on in the streets, um, you know acting as the arms and legs of the coup um, were unaware as to what they were doing, um, just following orders. And so I I guess I want to know what you guys think about uh, uh, that. It does suggest that if that's so, a level of disorganization, but maybe coups are always that way. I don't know what you think. Well, I mean, one of the analyses that I have read, that the reason it didn't succeed, because it wasn't a full army uh, coup on, on a senior level. Mm. There was a, a small number uh, within the army, but um, that obviously were involved in it to the degree, I mean, it was sophisticated to the degree that they used F-16 uh, uh, planes to bomb part of the parliament that actually Biden was taken also to tour and, and, and to look at on his on his trip. Um, but... Um, the fact that it was confusion for sure. I mean, initially, nobody knew what was going on. And we thought that some people say there was one conspiracy theory that I came across that actually the Russians has tipped Erdogan into. And this is why he's now they have this cozy, warm relationship between Moscow and Ankara is that they told him what's going on. Um, but I mean, who knows? I don't know. Maybe Peter knows more than I do. about I, I, what's I, mean, going I, on. I mean, the coup was badly executed, um, which made it very confusing. I mean, Rule 101 and the coup is you, you arrest or kill <laughs> the leader you're trying to get rid of. <laughs> you don't just let him you know, get on his iPhone. Rallying his supporters. And so, yeah, it was very confusing. But I think it's, it's very confusing when there are revolutions. And it's very confusing when there's any kind of uh, violent, like, violence like this. Just an anecdotal point in our own reporting on when the coup was breaking at the Daily Beast. We were hearing from a couple people, very anecdotally, that there were rumors going around in Turkey that this was, that Erdogan had actually fomented the coup to yeah. make it look like so, uh, he had detractors. So, yeah. you know, so there were there were conspiracy <laughs> theories and wheels within wheels moving in the midst of it. But, you know, my colleagues are right. It was very chaotic, very poorly planned, and we saw how quickly it was put down. It, it, it folded mm-hmm. up within yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was not clear at all that, 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 you know, all the senior military were on board with this. But, yeah, Coup mm-hmm. 101 was uh, rules were not followed in this case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Shane Harris is senior correspondent at the Daily Beast and a Future of War fellow at New America. He is author of the book At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. Nadia Bilbasi is Washington bureau chief at Al Arabiya. And Peter Bergen is CNN's national security analyst, the director of the International Security Program at New America and author of United States of Jihad, the untold story of Americans fighting for radical Islam. 
This has been the Diane Reem Show, and we are still getting calls about the burkini, just so, <laughs> just so everybody knows. I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, this is the Diane Reem Show. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR. NPR.